This is David Tarkington, lead pastor at First Family. Thank you for downloading this sermon. For more information about our church, go to firstfam.org or check out my blog at davidtarkington.com. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to Genesis chapter 28. We are uh, not in the Gospel of Matthew right now, and we are taking a, a themed approach over, Gen- over December. Uh, I, I like to, I'm always wary of breaking a, 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 a series up, but this is a, a focus that really comes with the play on words, Christmas presents, speaking of uh, who Christ is defined as in the Old Testament prophecy as Emmanuel. Emmanuel translated means God with us. And so the presence of God was not just something that, that God gave to one prophet in the middle of the Old Testament. It is a message of God's story throughout the Old and New Testaments. And today, through the Holy Spirit with residing in the children of God, through us, God remains with us. And there is such a great promise that I don't want us to miss this. I so appreciate the lyrics of the songs that were being sung today. The, the declaration that Jesus did come as a baby, but he did not remain a baby. That was not the end game. That was just really not even the beginning, but the beginning of that human part of Jesus' story. And it is an amazing moment. So Matthew, or G- Genesis, I'm so used to saying Matthew. Genesis chapter 28, beginning in verse 10. Begin reading, Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring." Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you, your offspring, shall, be, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the the gate of heaven. When you start looking at biblical characters, and Old Testament ones especially, you come across guys like Jacob, and Jacob really stands out to me as as one of the most undeserved characters in the Old Testament to receive blessings from God. I mean, here's a guy who, uh, we're not going to get into all of the details of his upbringing and who he was as a young man, but he was a deceiver, he was a cheat, and he had these things that were defining who he was. And so I look at it with a, a, with a little bit of piety, unfortunately, and say, oh, how undeserved this guy is of the blessings of God and the role he plays in God's story. And then I look in the mirror and I say, oh, how undeserved this guy is to receive the blessings of God and to have a right to play any role in God's story at all. And that is the message of every Christian because if we deserve the blessings, it's not a blessing, it's a payoff. If we deserve gifts, they're really not gifts. That's good to remember at Christmas, right? So, this blessed man named Jacob, who has so much of a history here that I do not have time to get through tonight, and this is the danger, and I fear this a little bit, I'm just cautious on this, that when we pull a story like this one just out of the Old Testament, because I'm going to even reference how we can't keep doing this, that we must understand the backstory and the context of what's happening. 
Because of time, I'm going to just encourage you to flip a few chapters back when you get a chance, even while I'm preaching if you want, and kind of get a, an understanding of who this guy is. See his uh, family life. See a little bit of the deception he had with his brother and how he stole some things and, and how his, he was a favorite child of his mother and his father had a favorite child. And if you're in a family story or a situation, you grew up where your family had some some discord within it, and there was some division among the siblings, and there were favorite children and unfavorite children. If that sounds like your story, know that it's not a new story. It's been around for centuries. And that's how God can even redeem someone such as Jacob for such a story as this. I look at this and I realize it, is, it does matter to understand all of that. And it, do, it is vital for us to get this. What we do know is this, is that Jacob... Suffice to say, he was blessed by God through his father Isaac. And he benefited from the covenant given from God to his grandfather Abraham. Jacob, by his own definition or description in the Old Testament here, was a deceiver and would be held accountable for that. He and his brother were at odds. And his brother, after what had happened, really wanted to just kill him. And, and we read that and we go, I can see why he would be that angry. And Jacob, understanding where, what he did, could look at his brother and go, I can understand why he's that angry too. Because it was a mess at that point within the home. And here we find ourselves in Genesis 28, after a whole bunch of stuff has gone on in the family, and Jacob is sent away from home. And he's sent away by his father for his own protection. It's one of those, you need to go. Because if you stay, we may have a funeral. You need to go. And you need to get out. And dad said, go and live with your uncle. That's where you need to be. Stay there. Let's let everything cool off back home. And maybe some things will get better over time. The good news is that God does heal that rift between him and his brother. I mean, there is a moment of reconciliation. That's another great story there. But we're here today at this moment. And for his own safety, he's going to this area. And this is either on his way there or he's already there and heading elsewhere. But he camps out. And he camps out with probably, and I think it's an interesting concept as it's brought up here, probably the worst sleeping bag you've ever described. The pillow is a rock. And so he just finds a place and he's sleeping on the ground in the wilderness and he's probably worn out. And, and he falls asleep, a deep sleep, somewhere near Haran. And he has a dream. And it's more than just a dream. We have dreams. You have dreams. I have dreams. And, and most of the time, you know, people say, well, does God still speak through dreams? Or can God still speak through dreams? I'm always cautious when anybody asks me a question that begins with, can God? Because I have to go, well, it's God. He can do whatever he wants to do. So then they, well, will God do that? And I'm like, well, he did speak through dreams. Will he do it? I'm sure. I've, I've heard missionary stories from other parts of the world where he does. But I do know this, that God will not speak through your dream and contrary to what he has already spoken through the word of God. And he will not give you extra stuff that is not already declared in the word of God. The, the canon's closed. So will he? I don't know. If you think it's God speaking through a dream, you need to measure it against scripture. It could just be you had pizza too late at night. And you had a weird dream, or you have a fever or something, or medications hitting you. So don't, don't go too far with that, but understand, can God? Absolutely will God. He could. 
but never contrary to what he's already revealed. But here we have him speaking to Jacob in a dream. And Jacob's dream is of a ladder, and on the ladder there are some angels, and then there's God speaking. It's, it's weird, but it's vital. Apparently it's very important. You, almost, you have two paragraphs segmented out in chapter 28 in Genesis for us to read and reread and read over and over again and figure out why we need to know these things. And this is where we begin. I'm sure if you were planning a Christmas series, you would go to this passage, right? I didn't think so either, but that's where we are. And I realize this is where we have to begin today. Now there was a song that came out. It was probably a folk song before it was recorded. It's been a country song. It's been recorded by a number of artists. Uh, Here's how diverse it is. This song has been recorded by Loretta Lynn, a version of it by Kenny Chesney, by Ice Cube, and David Crowder. And it's just, it's, it's one of those songs that you may have heard as a child, or maybe heard many years ago, or maybe you heard one of these recordings. Uh, Bob, do you have the Ice Cube recording? I think, you know, no, maybe not, no, <laughs> that one. I didn't either. I didn't have the Loretta Lynn one either. But the song is, and there's a line in it that says, everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. That's the line. Everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. I don't know who wrote it, don't know really the history of it so much, don't really care so much, to be honest with you, so you don't need to email me that. But regardless who wrote it, I don't know if they fully understood the depth of what that line says. See, we're in the business of making disciples, and part of disciple making is once, one, introducing you to Jesus Christ, and then working with you and with me through the Word of God for the entire rest of our lives to change the lenses through which we look at the world. We look at the world with a worldview that is defined by our heritage, by our culture, by our race, and by where we grew up, and by what we think is right, wrong, fair, or unfair. That's our worldview. Everybody has a worldview. You don't get to opt out of a worldview. It's why you perceive things the way you do. And here's where it gets really touchy. All of our worldviews are messed up. Regardless how right we think they are, if they're just culturally based. The pressure from, or the, or the lesson from us, or the message from the Christian or to the Christian, is a shift from a a worldview that we grow up with to a biblical worldview. And nobody is born with a biblical worldview. You are born again, and then you develop a biblical worldview. And how that changes over time is you begin to see things, and you're going, that's why this is happening, because of what this said. It's really hard to also have a biblical worldview if you don't have a biblical You never read it, you don't open it, you don't know it. If you're trusting me to read it for you, that's good, but you need to get in it yourself. It's really hard, and so our push every Sunday is for, we come in here and we're having our lenses readjusted. When you go to the eye doctor and you get a new set of glasses, they do one, two, one, two, one, two. So we're doing one, two, cultural worldview, biblical worldview, which is clearer. And we're wanting this to be clearer to see what God is doing. And so in our 
in our cultural worldview, we would say, yeah, everybody goes to heaven, or wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. And culturally, that means we just want to live a long time. Biblically, when you finally get to that point, you read that line, everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. And from a Christian perspective, we go, oh, I get it. I have to carry my cross daily and die to self daily. And my heart, my nature says I don't want to. That's why I have to. Now our heaven, our heaven, uh, home in heaven is not based on how good we are and how we necessarily respond to a song, but there is some truth in that to that degree. And so when you start thinking about heaven, you start thinking about, well, yeah, everybody wants to go to heaven. There is a, an understanding that for the most part, everybody does want to go to heaven. Now, I do get this, that there are people who do not believe in God, do not, they, they, their faith is in a version of science that isn't science. I mean, that, that's a whole worldview shift as well. God is not anti-science. He created it. But nevertheless, that's a message for another day. But there are people that don't believe in God. They don't believe in what they grew up with. They don't believe in religion, or they say they don't believe in that. And so they don't believe that there's an afterlife if you want to go there. But for the most part, most people on the planet at some level, whether lost, saved, another world religion or whatever, they believe or want to believe that there is something after this life and they would desire it to be good. Everybody wants to go there. Religions throughout the world have offered ideas of paradise and home beyond the stars. Whether that's a Islam or, or a Nirvana or some other world religion out there, it, it is not uncommon to have some concept that there is something outside this life that is awaiting us. And as Christians, we believe that as well. There are things, and there's, there's something to understand as well. There is truth, and then there, there are more lies than truth out there. Did you know that? Because if, if there's only one truth, absolute, all people, all times, all circumstances, and there are a whole bunch of opinions about everything that are contradictory to that one truth, that means there are a lot more lies than truth out there. And we've got to be discerning. And our worldviews will mess us up if we're not living in the Word. So these religions have these ideas, and uh, it seems that it is part of the human story to desire to gain something. I mean, that's why when there's a, when there's, someone loses their life, everybody, I mean, honestly, I mean, is this not the most common thing said about people? They're in a better place. Now, from a biblical worldview, from a Christian perspective, from an understanding of absolute truth, we have to sit back. Now, we may not verbalize this, because that may not be, but we sit back and we go, more people are not in a better place than are. They might not be in a better place. I will say, that, you know, someone some talk about this being, this is your best life. If this is your best life right here on earth, then you're in trouble. You're already in trouble. But everybody desires some kind of heaven out there, some kind of paradise, something out there. But then, so there's a whole lot of false teachings regarding heaven in our world. We have to be very diligent to, to, to work and live through this and, and to see through it. And a lot of these false teachings come from various religious and pseudo-religious groups. But perhaps the most dangerous are not the ones that come outside of Christianity, but the Christianized versions that find their, find their belief systems embedded within the church body. Because there are Christians who believe that people die for a few minutes, go to heaven, take pictures, come back and write a book about it, which then is made into a movie. Because apparently this isn't enough, so we need some kid or somebody else to come back and tell us it's real. 
Now we've just walked, I've just stepped on some toes. And so if you're going, are you telling me that heaven is for real book is a bad book? I'm going to be very clear. Yes. Second Corinthians 12, 2 is an indicator of when Paul had a vision of the third heaven, which is heaven. And he said, there are things that I can't talk about. But apparently in the 20th and 21st century, God changed his mind and said, okay, I'm going to bring you up here. I want everybody to talk about it, write a book and make a movie. And sell some cheesy Jesus stuff that's extra biblical. Folks, I'm just going to tell you. We are a, a, an interesting population. We are enamored with heaven stories that are outside of scripture. We're enamored with them. Heaven tourism is big business. Christian bookstores sold it and, they, and many have stopped as they should. Church libraries have had them in there and we should find those books if they're in church library ours and throw them in the big box in the back because extra biblical accounts of heaven and I know you're going, but you don't know, you don't understand it's hard. I don't have to. All I have to understand is what the word of God says. When you keep adding stuff to it to make it more palatable, you're, dead, you're, you're dumbing down the actual words. If you're trying to sensationalize what God has already given us to make it more marketable, you've done a disservice to the word of God. And so I don't apologize for that, but I do think as your shepherd that is to warn you against false teaching that you need to be very careful and discerning because I think discernment is a lost gift in many cases. Nevertheless, many people have ended up believing man-made versions of heaven that allow entry based on one's good works or one's comparable or comparative holiness. Let me just go ahead and clarify this too. I'm not mad, I just want to make sure you know truth. There are Christians that think people go to heaven because they're good. There are Christians that think people go to heaven because they've done more good things than bad things. You need to understand, there is nobody good. Nobody goes to heaven because they're good. If you're like, well, I'm better than them. Well, gosh, I'm better than Hitler, but what's that get me? Everybody's better than somebody in comparative goodness. But nobody's better than Christ. And he is the way, truth, life. And no one gets to the Father. Over him, around him, or under him, they have to go through him. And I'm not good enough for heaven, but he is, and because I'm now his, he's paid my way. See, he bought me a ticket. And he paid the ultimate price. And that, that, that's not even the story I was getting into today, but I think it's very dangerous when we merge cultural worldviews and let them supersede biblical ones. And I'm not trying to, well, I, I don't, it's not about offense. I mean, if you're offended by truth, then that's on you. But I'm not mad. I just want you to know. And we can't perpetuate lies. So we've got to make sure we're clear on this. I've got to make sure I'm clear on this. So, as I look at this passage of Scripture about the latter, there is a tendency among many to believe that this story is about getting to heaven. And that tendency is because our default setting in our lives, when we read stories, when we watch movies, when we read books, is to make it all about us. This even happens in Sunday school, Bible study time. And I think we've got to be very careful about this. There is a tendency to read a Bible story and then ask this open-ended question for the hopes of discussion, but it leads down a path I don't think you want to go. And it is this question, where do you see yourself in this story? 
Well, here's a fact. There's not a person in this room that was sleeping on a rock near Haran when this happened. So you're not in this story, and neither am I. You know who's in the story? Jacob, who's been dead longer than we've been alive. But the story is alive because the God in this story is not a supporting character. He's the central character. We read Bible stories sometimes with an attempt to find out where we fit in it. Well, I think I'm like the rich young ruler. Well, I think I'm like this guy. Well, I'm more like this person, this man, this woman. This is how I relate. When there's really one ultimate message from every and any and every Bible story is to be more like Christ and to quit trying to find ourselves more like John or Peter or the rich young ruler. It's a dangerous path because when we go down, it sounds, it sounds like, well, it's not that big a deal. It doesn't, it's really not a big deal at the, on the onset, but the further you go into it, all of a sudden, God's word is more about you than God. And that's dangerous. So let's get back into this. When you read this story about Jacob and his ladder, the fact of the matter is that this story is less about us and more about God. Now that's a revelation for some, but here's the deeper part of it. Every story in scripture is less about us and more about God. It either got really quiet or I put all of you to sleep. So let's see what we can do. There is this common thread that undermines much of the teaching occurring within churches, Sunday schools, Bible studies, home groups, and everywhere else today. And there is this common thread. It's undermining good biblical teaching. We've got to be very careful of it. And here's the thread that's undermining this. It is the, called the centrality of humanity. The centrality of humanity. When man becomes the central person to, to all of God's story, the story is no longer God's story. And in this dream that God gave Jacob, we see some strange things happening in this God story that he gave to Jacob. First is verse 12. Let's go to verse 12 again. He dreamed, Jacob, behold, there was a ladder set up on earth. The top of it reached to heaven. Behold, the angels of God were ascending, ascending and descending on it. Now, I don't know what you picture when you hear this. What do you think of? What kind of ladder do you think it is? A-frame? Extension? One of those little uh, home shopping network ones that folds up to your pocket and then you can climb, you know, those? Right? We got a ladder. I think it's still in there. We have a ladder under the stairs here. Is it still in there? We should get it out now. It takes like 30 guys to get out, and it's about, it goes, it's huge. It has a trailer hitch on the top that you have, or some kind of hitch. You have to wear a harness and hook yourself into it if you climb to the top. It's huge. It's a big A frame ladder. You got to hold it. You got to, it's scary. I mean, I may be tall, but I don't like heights like that. It's a scary thing. I don't know why the strap is. I guess so if the ladder falls, it will automatically just crush you and it knows where you can find your body. I don't know why it's on there. But you've got to strap in to climb it, supposedly, according to OSHA. Just check. See if Brian was here. But this ladder, whether it's an A-frame or an exam, that, that's kind of what my modern mind pictures. One of the ladders I have in my garage, you know, how does this work? But the word that's translated ladder, it's not wrong. It is translated ladder, but it's like many Old Testament and Hebrew words. It has multiple meanings. And another word, and the image that you would probably get that's probably more accurate, would be from that ancient era where you had these, these buildings, these big rectangular buildings. I think they're called ziggurats. Somebody, ziggurats? Somebody, cigarettes? No, not that. These big buildings. And they have stairs that go on the outside, up at an angle around, and then there's another level, and there's stairs that go up. So you end up with these, kind of these, these stairway to heaven, I guess. That's the Tower of Babel image, actually, if you want to go that far back. But 
So if you have this image of this building with these, these connecting staircases, uh, what you end up with in this, this dream, in a very real sense, it's not, so, it's not that big a deal if it's stairs, it's not that big a deal if it's a ladder. The point is, it's a bridge of sorts that connects earth to heaven. But since we tend to, and I do this, read stories with my perspective as primary, primary, Many times we read this, or you may read this, and think about this being a story about the ascension from earth to heaven, because that's kind of how we we live. You know, we live our life, we're going to get to heaven. It's all about the finish line. It's about getting there. It's about the ascension. But I I think that's the wrong focus here. In fact, I don't believe that's what this message is about. This is not about going up. This is a message about coming down. And this message, if it's about going up, then humanity is the central part of the story. But if it's about coming down, it's got to be about who God is over in heaven already coming down. See how it shifts? When we read stories from our perspective, it's always from our perspective. It's always about us. I want to get up there where God is. And God's saying, hang tight, I'm coming down. Now, let me, let me, now you're going to have to bear with me. We're going to go all seminary on you for just a moment. There are teaching motifs throughout Genesis that are often missed. Um, this is stuff you may not have heard in VBS or Sunday school or even in a Bible study class, but I believe context is vital, especially in this case. And, and Genesis is, is one of the most, Genesis is one of the most widely read books in the Bible. In January, many Christians will read Genesis. Anybody confess that you started reading Genesis in January over and over and over? I want to read through the Bible in a year, so I'm going to start in January. It's just like I'm going to join a gym. You know, so I'm going to read Genesis. And many of us have been faithful to read Genesis, all 50 chapters of Genesis. We even get through some of the Exodus. But then Leviticus shows up, and we're like, oh, my goodness. Oh, my. That's when God really tests your faith, right? And so you you kind of fall off the Bible reading wagon, so to speak, and you're just kind of floating around until next January. I can read it again! So you read Genesis again. So you've read Genesis 65 times, but, you you know, you just kind of, whew, one of these days we'll get to Joel or Obadiah. But Genesis, being one of the most ri- widely read books, is also one that, that is easy to miss the full motif of the story. So let me read you something from a study Bible notes on the preliminary notes on this book. And I think it's important. That's why I'm taking time to do this. Modern readers are likely to be familiar with selected parts of Genesis. That's what I just said. That, why? Because Genesis has great stories. And great stories that are easily turned into children's stories. So you have read Noah and the ark, and you have read the creation story, and you have read Adam and Eve, and and Cain and Abel, and, and Abraham and Isaac and Sarah, and then Jacob and Esau. I mean, these stories... They make movies out of these stories. They make storybooks just on certain stories out of Genesis. And it's okay to read those stories, but it's dangerous when that's all you've ever done. Because if you only pull out, well, now we're going to do Jacob and Esau. Now we're going to do Noah and the Ark. Noah and the Ark, it's a wonderful story. Kids love it. It's animals. It's a boat. It's total destruction and death. It's a great story for children. Those are the images that are not plastered in the preschool, right? So, but we just pluck them out. So let me read this. Most readers are familiar with selected parts of Genesis. However, most struggle to comprehend how these disparate elements in this book combined to form a unified account. 
Therefore, individual episodes are often read in isolation with an inadequate appreciation of how the larger context shapes the passage in question. Meaning this, if you read Genesis like it's just a collection of children's stories, you are likely missing the fullness of what God is trying to reveal to us through this. And therefore, if you're not connecting the fall with Noah, and you're skipping over the chapters that just have begat, 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 or had a baby, had a baby, had a baby, if you want the message version, and you're skipping the in-between stuff, you're not getting the context of this. And this is a dangerous thing. In Christian, we, we understand about theology as a study of God, but within evangelical, within Christianity, there's Christology, which is the focus on Christ. So let me say this. Let me read this to you. In saying that Genesis points forward to Jesus Christ, one must be careful because Genesis does not provide a full-grown Christology. It does not give the fullness where everything is pointing to Jesus, 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 fully. You have to have Exodus. You have to have Numbers. You have to have Deuteronomy. It has to connect. What begins in Genesis, however, is a divine promise of salvation that goes all the way back to Adam and Eve's offspring or the woman's offspring, that child, that one that's bruised that the prophecy says. And that story is expanded throughout the Old Testament. And throughout the Old Testament, there is this idea that is introduced in Genesis fully consistent with the final reality found in Christ himself. This emphasis, now here's something that may not be be fully comprehended yet and may not be something you care to know, has to be understood in the light of this. God created earth, and we think, we often think, God created earth for us human beings to hang out on. But that's not the purpose of the earth. According to Genesis, God created the earth for himself so that it would be his dwelling place. Now, our binary minds say, earth is for people, heaven's for God. Bible says, earth is for God. And it's his dwelling place. And his plan is to reside here, surrounded by his children and royal priesthood and the nation of Israel re- rebirth. I mean, that, that is d- throughout the book of Genesis and beyond. Now, that may not make much sense to you. You may not care about that. But I think that kind of shifts the whole focus at some point. Because we tend to go, this is ours, and we want to get to heaven, and God's saying, but I, it's all mine. You, need to, you forgot this. I, it's all mine. I created earth on purpose. It's my dwelling place. You can see it come to fruition at the end of the book. New Jerusalem, new, new, new Israel, new earth, new heavens. And that's why I think this is so crucial. Now, now time of the es- es- essence here, let me, let me fast forward just a bit. This dream that is given reveals God's plan for making earth his dwelling place. And it reveals that it is still intact. He did not forfeit the plan. But the earth is infected. When sin entered the story through Adam and Eve, it didn't just affect humanity. It infected everything in creation. All the water, all the air, all the dirt, all the animals, all the plants, all infected by sin. It's a broken planet. It's a broken world. And there is a perpetual spiritual push against truth that Christians face or humanity faces that is almost unbearable for Christians and is unbearable for unbelievers. You are always in the spiritual battle. Now the message that's given here is through a dream, and it is a message, it is a promise, and it is a clarifying moment for all of humanity, though specifically at this story for Jacob. The latter ultimately is an image of connectedness between heaven and earth. 
But there is a revelation in John's gospel that gives us more clarity. Let's see if we can put this verse up here for me, guys. First John, or it's John chapter 1. We got it? If you don't, look in your Bible. John chapter 1, verse 51. Let me read it to you. It says this, Jesus is speaking. It says, and he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open. Does this sound familiar? Okay, this is Jesus talking to a bunch of Jewish people, and he's referencing a dream that they've heard over and over again. He said, I say to you, truly, truly, I say to you, you're going to see heaven open and the angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Centuries later, Jesus shows up and says, you remember that ladder story? I'm the ladder. I am the ladder. Heavens open up and angels will ascend and descend on me. I'm the way. He said that in John 1, and it's revealed throughout the gospel, the centrality of God in this message shines brightly here. Jake, the dreamer in the story is Jacob, and Jacob's not the main player, nor is he the focal point. Look at here. We have called for, for centuries, this has been known as Jacob's ladder. It's not even Jacob's ladder. It's God's ladder. God is the central character in this story. It is his ladder. Jacob is important. He is the recipient of a great message. He is valuable to God, not only as an image bearer, but as a child of God, as one called out by God, one given a promise and, a pre and, and, and much ahead of him. But this dream is a gift to Jacob to hear and to see. But the ladder isn't Jacob's, and the story isn't focused on Jacob. The latter is Jesus, and the focus is God. This is a clear statement of God's holiness. The angels appearing in, in this image as God's messengers ascending and descending. I don't know what your brain does with that, but I can't picture anything else but an escalator. That's all I've got. I see this perpetual escalator with angels going up. And, and if your imagery of angels on an escalator looks like the angels on your Christmas cards, that's not what we're seeing here. We're seeing warrior angel messengers of God ascending and descending on this perpetual ladder, escalator, whatever. Why? Because they are continually in spiritual battle with the forces of the evil one here on earth and continually coming back to heaven for latest orders and messengers. They are God's messengers and the spiritual battle has been perpetually going since before this story took place. And so this is a constant movement of God's messengers battling and receiving orders and giving messages and protecting those Glory to God for the good of His children. And there are people that worship angels in our world today. And not only are they fools, but foolish angel worshipers will miss the point by making angels the primary part of the story. Let me just clarify this. Anytime an angel shows up in a biblical passage, the angel is always supporting cast. Never the primary. Well, what about when Gabriel showed up to Mary? Uh... God's the main character. Angel is supporting cast. Angel always supporting cast. They are the messengers of God. Verse 13, behold, the Lord stood above it. Hebrews says it could mean that the Lord stood beside him. You can take that because it looks like that in verse 16. God's glory is revealed. 
the message is clear. No guesses here. You know, we get fr- you know, sometimes we get frustrated when we don't think God's giving us clear instructions. I just wish God would tell me what to do. And God says, okay, do this. Well, I wish you'd tell me something else, God. You know? Rich young ruler shows up. And you got, what do I need to ha- do to inherit uh, eternal life? Jesus, uh, sell everything you have. I can't do that. Bye-bye. We got more things to do. I mean, that story's done. It's over. How clear can you get? And here God gives a clear message to Jacob in this dream. And here's what he says. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. There is a promise here offered in this dream that is echoed of the promise that was given prior, not just to Jacob, but to Isaac and to Abraham. And the promise, ultimately, though there are details that are unique, the promise is this. It's a promise of presence. I will not leave you. And in this passage, this is a specific promise to a specific man. This is Jacob's promise. But this type of promise revealed here, we find it echoed in numerous places in the Old Testament and then ultimately in the New Testament. And this repeated promise from God to people, from God to his children, therefore, though specific for the individual who receives it, for the church at large becomes very clear as we see the Holy Spirit residing within us and the promise of Christ himself, I am with you and I will not forsake you. I will be with you till the end of the age. This is the promise of presence. This type of presence. Being there. This Christmas season, it's easy to get lost in the decorations and the Christmas movies and the gift exchanges and the parties and the cookies. And I like all of that stuff. That's really good stuff. There's nothing bad with that. But it's easy to get lost in that and miss the primary message. The greatest present ever given is God's presence and through Jesus Christ the ladder you didn't know Jesus was known as the ladder but apparently he is he's the connector he's the bridge he's the son of God God the son and through Christ God is here his spirit is here God Christ came and then Christ ascended he's in heaven now with the father and the Holy Spirit was sent And the Spirit of God is with with us even now. And because of Christ, because of God, because the promise maker keeps those promises, God is ever present. And he's here so that we may know him. See, we read the story of the ladder about how can we get up to heaven. And the story of the ladder is God saying, wrong story, I'm coming to you. And it'll begin when there's a little baby in Bethlehem and I'm coming to you. I'm going to wrap my divinity in human flesh and my son will come to you. Fully God, fully man, he will pay the ultimate price. He will do all that's needed so that you eventually can get back up the ladder. But you can't go up the ladder if you don't know the ladder. You can't go up if you don't know who he is. You can't go up if you don't receive. See, if Jesus is the greatest gift ever given, you need to understand this next thing about gifts. Gifts are only worthwhile when they're received. So the gift is offered. Some have received it and many have not. I pray today, if you have yet to receive that gift and open it, the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ alone, that you will. You see, when Jacob woke up from that dream, you ever wake up from a dream and it takes you a while to figure out where reality is? Did that really happen? 
Those are usually based on medication or bad diets, right? In this case, Jacob wakes up and he realizes quickly this was no dream. This was a vision. And at that moment, he said this, Surely the presence of the Lord is in this place. My prayer today is that as we gathered here, we came in with many of us the same expectation that Jacob had when he showed up at Haran. Jacob had no expectation to meet God. He was just trying to get some sleep. I know a lot of people that go to church just to get some sleep. But maybe, not expecting it, but God meets you. And maybe today that's your story. Do you know this Jesus? Who came down from heaven to live a perfect life, die on a cross, pay our penalty so we can know the God that he is. If you have yet to say yes to him, why would you wait? Let's do it today.